Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, and I am here today with Anise Vance, who is the author of Hush Harbor. Anise, thanks for being here with me today. Rebecca, thank you so much for having me on. This is such a pleasure to be able to be here with you and to be able to talk about my book and books in general and writing. I'm really excited to get into it. Awesome. So I don't want to be the one to talk all about what your book's about. So can you give um, everyone a little overview of what Hush Harbor is about? Absolutely. So the book takes place in a fictional city called Bliss, New Jersey, where there's been the shooting of a young black teenager. And in response to that shooting, the city um, gradually, uh, the tensions in the city gradually escalate into a full out armed rebellion. Um, And so the novel follows four characters that are pivotal to that rebellion. Malik, who is new to the movement um, and who you know, is the first POV character you meet. And so you get to know the world, you get to know the different players through Malik's vantage point. Then you meet Quinn, who is actually working in government, but who has really deep sympathies with the revolution um, and is kind of caught in this place where she doesn't really know where her allegiances lie. Um, She's also a white woman. So you're really struggling with notions of white allyship uh, through Quinn's point of point of view. And then finally, you meet, meet Jeremiah and Nova Prince, who are the leaders of the revolution. They're brother and sister. They're highly intelligent, very stubborn, and um, and really, um, really inspirational figures to a lot of people uh, in that revolutionary movement. They also are striving towards something other than, or something more than just resistance. They're really striving towards creating a different kind of society, a different kind of world that centers justice and love and sacrifice. Um, and that's one of the reasons they named the movement Hush Harbor, which is which historically were places that enslaved people would gather to worship and pray in their own languages, using their own traditions, and they would do so in secret. And so these were places both of resistance and creativity um, and, and places of profound spirituality. And so Jeremiah and Nova are trying to create that kind of that kind of space um, in bliss and uh, and in the United States. So what is it like when you wrote this, what was your sort of inspiration? Was there anything that sort of um, you drew on to create this? Like, how did this book come to be? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a really good question. So, you know, I've always been fascinated with revolutions. My uh, half of my family is Iranian, Iranian immigrants. And um, if you are Iranian and you live really anywhere in the world, time is sort of very neatly divided for you between pre-revolution and post-revolution. And you grow up with all of these all of these stories um, about how life was and how life is now, right? Um, so I grew up with that fascination and it really carried me through a lot of my, my education. And so I ended up in Belfast in Northern Ireland for graduate school where I was studying the Troubles, which is a really, really... Um, you know, in some ways, hilariously 
understated term for what actually occurred in Northern Ireland over the course of decades. It was more than just troubles, you know, civil conflict um, that occurred there. And I was doing a lot of interviews with folks who had been paramilitary members and some folks who were still active in those groups. And I remember one interview in particular, it was an older gentleman, short cropped hair. Nobody told me who he was or what his name, you know, they didn't even tell me his name. Um, And so I walked into this room and he started talking to me and as he was speaking, and he was speaking about his background, right? He was speaking about how he had grown up in a neighborhood that was mixed Catholic and Protestant. He wasn't really able to tell the difference between who was who. And then all of a sudden, when the troubles began, he noticed certain people would move out of the neighborhood. And he noticed conversations would become a little bit more tense. And then he started hearing about this person or that person who had got hurt. And he himself then started to attend meetings. And meetings turned into more meetings. And more meetings turned into a gun. And a gun turned into sort of a lifetime. Um, and so, so that experience in speaking to him was somewhat revelatory for me because I realized that a, I knew who this person actually was. He was quite infamous in Belfast and B, I started to like him quite a lot. He was super charismatic. He would really draw you in, um, great storyteller and made you feel like you were sort of the center of the universe, And I thought about him for a long time and thought, well, is it possible in the United States for somebody to go on sort of a similar journey where their intent was an intent that was just and noble, um, but it led them to all kinds of places with really, really difficult questions to answer? Um, I sat on sort of that idea and that concept for, for a few years, and that was really the beginning of Hush Harbor. And then in 2014, there were three murders that occurred very close to each other in, in sort of a timeline. Um, Eric Garner in New York, Michael Brown in Ferguson, and Tamir Rice in Cleveland. And there was obviously an enormous nationwide reaction. Um, part of my personal reaction was starting to write Hush Harbor because it felt you know, I remember there was a there was a particular night, Rebecca, where I walked out onto my street. I was living in Boston at the time. I walked out on the street and I looked to my right and to my left, and it was around dusk, and so there was a few lights still on, but kind of you know had an eerie quality. And I was wondering to myself why this all wasn't burning down. <laughs> and so and so you know a lot of the book draws from that that feeling. Um, and draws from the sense that something is very, very wrong with the world that we live in. Yeah, I have to say that um, reading your book, there was this, I don't know if eerie is the right word, but this sense of like, although it is, you know, set in this fictional town in this fictional space, um, that at any point, this could be, this could happen, right? This could occur. This is not um, um, this idea of sort of, having a revolution and a race revolution, right. Um, is something that, um, we, I think is thought about often in the U S and is pushed more and more. So there is that feeling that this could eventually happen in some way, shape or form. For sure. For sure. And, you know, in that, that was, as I was writing, it was one of the challenges where I wanted to write something that felt like it was only a heartbeat away, you know, like if you just had the right set of dominoes fall, this could really happen. Um, and, 
because because you know because that's I think I think a lot of us walk around with that sort of sense, especially the, with the events of the last seven, eight, nine years. It feels like we're being pushed closer and closer to the to the brink of something. Um, so I wanted to make sure the world felt like that, uh, that it felt really, really tight in terms of the logistics of it, in terms of how this thing actually emerged and the questions that the characters are grappling with. What would you actually grapple with if you were in that situation? Um, and so, and while while also making sure that the characters weren't hokey stereotypes, right? That's one of the big risks in the book when you write a book like this, you know, that especially your black characters come across as somehow, you know, just irrational and impulsive and overly violent and all of these ugly, ugly stereotypes. So in the book itself, I had to be really, really careful about writing them in a way that showed a fullness of their humanity, a fullness of their intelligence, of their genius, a fullness of their love and compassion, and really showed where their actions were were coming from. So it so it so it was a challenge to write in that sense and trying to make it as real as possible. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the characters because I really love that you did multiple POVs, right? Um, so can you talk about that decision? Like why why show us, um, why walk through this story and walk through your narrative with these multiple POVs and um, sort of these choices that you made? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so when I started writing the book, Rebecca, man, it was, I got to tell you, for any writers who are listening to this, um, you should know that whatever your first draft of your novel is, is a million times better than my first draft was. <laughs> um, my first draft was maybe 14, 15 POVs. There were, you know, newspaper articles that I had written. There were city council meeting minutes. There were different police officers. There was this, that, and the other. It was just truly kind of all over the place because I really wanted to understand this world. And I felt like it was so important to understand every single facet of it, which from a writer's perspective, it is so that you know how to tell the story. But from a reader's perspective, really what you want to get down to are, are the nuts and bolts. What do I need to know to make this world feel real? What do I need to know to make the tension feel real? Um, And what do I need to know to make sort of the, the logical sequence of events work? So I eventually narrowed it down to these four POVs, but even in that process, it was, you know, it was still all over the map. I was writing most of them in first person. I didn't really know how to sequence them. So they would, you know, it wouldn't, it's not like it's structured right now where one person's POV is a quarter of the book and then the next person, the next person, they were all interspersed with each other initially. And I just didn't know how to make the book, the book sing. And, um, and then finally I read, uh, Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi, which I just think is a modern masterpiece. It is, it's truly a brilliant novel. She's one of my favorite authors of all time. Um, if anybody is listening and wants book recommendations, Burnt Shadows by Camilla Shamsi, Home Fire and Best of Friends, I think are just really brilliant, brilliant pieces of literature. But I read Home Fire and I was at a cafe. I was with my wife. And I finished reading and dropped the book on my chest and looked at her and told her, oh, I know how to write Hush Harbor because the structure was just so clear and, and just felt like exactly the kind of the kind of tension building and world building that I wanted to do. In that, what Shamsi does so well is she calibrates what happens on scene and what happens off scene in a character's POV. So that anytime you're experiencing something from a char- with, with a character, 
when you get to the moment where they discover something, you as a reader are also discovering that thing. So it feels like a real surprise. And as you're learning information, they're learning that same information. So it feels natural and there isn't a ton of, you know, there isn't a ton of unnecessary exposition. There isn't a ton of sort of, you know, tangent off over here to, you know, off to the right or to the left to explain something that's happening. You're just walking along with that character. And as you're going through with them, you're getting the surprise, you're getting the tension, you're getting the suspense. And so mapping those moments onto the different characters became a real important piece of the novel, right? What happens when? Um, So that when you discover something in Jeremiah's point of view, or when Jeremiah discovers something, you're discovering that as well, right? Um, Or when Nova's discovering something, you're discovering that as well. Whereas other characters might have known that, but when you're with them in their POV, it just never came up. Um, And so that was... That was really the biggest thing. The final thing I'll say on this, and I know I'm going a little long on this this question. I just love these craft sort of questions. Um, the, the final thing I'll say on this is that it felt to me really important that in a novel that grapples with these kinds of themes, um, and that is a Black-centered novel, that we have multiple voices. Um, I, I was really, really uh, wary of the idea that one voice might somehow um, be conceived of representing the fullness of Black perspectives. Now, obviously, the number of voices in the novel still do not represent the fullness of Black perspectives, but at least they nod towards differences and they nod towards diversity and complexity. So so that was another really kind of conscious conscious choice. Three out of the four POVs are are Black folks. Yeah, I really did appreciate um, that feel that you wonder what are these characters thinking? What are the other characters thinking or or what do they really know about what's going on? And as you move through, you find out, Oh, maybe they did know a little more, or maybe they did not actually know um, more than you thought they would. Um, So as we move through, um, when each character sort of we move to a new POV, we get a little more complexity about the characters prior to that too. And sort of how they're getting into those spaces. Can you talk a little bit about um, your talking about sort of world building, right? Your location and your space and creating this um, this city, uh, building this city in um, a space where it is there's limited access from the outside world, right? Um, and, and sort of how you created this city in this space and and maybe even why you chose um, to locate it in the East Coast. Uh, was it just because that's where you are from or was there another reason for that? Like, what is it about that space? That's a great question. So I chose the East Coast um, because it felt more plausible in a city or in a space where there was a higher level of density. That that frankly was just so so crucial to to thinking about. Okay, well, where would this revolution actually be, or could it be such that you'd have a lot of people who are part of the revolution? but they wouldn't be so spread out that it would be really easy to kind of break a piece off here, break a piece off of there. Right. So you needed that kind of density and that sort of um, density in a really isolated geography. Right. So it felt very East coast with your, with your super dense East coast cities. Um, I I honestly, I put it in New Jersey because that's where I did my MFA program and it was just sort of a nod to my MFA program. Um, And, 
um, which is uh, Rutgers Camden. Incredible, incredible place um, and incredible people at Rutgers Camden. So shout out to any of them, whoever listened to this. Um, and and then, you know, there was also this, this thing about when I was in Camden, which is right across from Philly. I actually was living in Philly and then coming back and forth into Camden. There there were all these sorts of bridges if you ever if you ever if you've ever been to Philly right all these bridges that um, that kind of separate one part of the city from another or separate the city from another place and those bridges um, form the, the connective tissue right and you have the same thing sort of in in New York with Manhattan right where you know these bridges form the connective tissue or you know the subways or, or whatever it is but if you cut those off, really what you're dealing with are sort of is sort of like an island situation right um and so the the it felt really really natural to think about well what if this place was housed on kind of an island that didn't feel like an island during regular times because it had all of these pathways out but during this revolution the bridges are barricaded off subways aren't working and you truly have to like cross a river that is being patrolled in order to get to this place. Right. Um, and again, that felt like a really kind of East coast thing and not only East coast, but really like particular to the Northeast. I live, I live in the South now, the Southeast. Um, but, and that vibe is really a very much a Northeast vibe. So it felt like a natural fit. The third thing was in terms of like tension and energy, there are few places in the United States that can rival your major America, your major northeastern cities, right? You go to a New York, you go to a Boston, you go to a Philly, you go downtown. You, I mean, you feel that energy and that tension and that propulsion there. And while Bliss is, you know, parts of Bliss are entirely vacated because of the revolution, you still wanted sort of that lingering feeling of of tension and that lingering feeling of momentum that. Even in the dead of night, if you go to, um, you know, if you go to a Philly or if you go to a to a Camden, you kind of feel it in the pavement, right? You feel that energy. You feel the thousands upon thousands and thousands of people who have walked that path that day. Um, and so I wanted I wanted that to be a part of this part of this as well. Um, I did my PhD at Temple. So mm-hmm. <laughs> when I read this, I was like, oh, yes, I'm home. Um, right. <laughs> and there was this. It, and yes, like I got that. And I was like, Jersey, really Jersey. But um, yeah, but that feel like I completely understand that what you're talking about. And I love like, um, so at one point, I mean, I guess it's not at one point, but throughout the novel, you have this sort of um farm like farmers market a market days that sort of open up and people come and i could just like imagine that in those spaces and and mm-hmm. walk the streets right that idea of like how do we create some kind of semblance of normalcy in a space where nothing is going to nothing feels normal right exactly exactly um and it's just harder to do so you know we moved down, we moved out of, uh, my wife and I were in Boston when we got married and I moved up from, I was actually, I was in Philly, then DC, then moved up to Boston. And then when we moved out of Boston and moved down to the Southeast, one of the, the first things we noticed was how spread out everything is and how much more in some cases difficult it becomes to have that kind of 
feeling of 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 rhythm or normalcy um in a in a communal kind of way right it's really easy to do it with sort of your house and you have your car and then you drive to the grocery store and come back or you drive here and come back and da 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 but it's not the same as walking down the street to your grocery store or walking to the subway and being on the subway with folks or you know there's a sense of collective that that's generated there and that was so important to what Jeremiah and Nober were trying to do in terms of generating the sense of collective that that choosing spaces that kind of, you know, lifted that up were really important. And then choosing events like you were, like, like you mentioned, you know, that they're, the Jeremiah Nova are intentionally, they're thinking about what are collective ways of feeding ourselves, right? With food, what are collective ways of educating ourselves? What are collective ways of trading and creating commerce? Um, And so they're really intentional about those things. And so you have those, those threads throughout the novel. Um, the market day, I think is probably the biggest one, the one that you, that you gestured to and, um, and has kind of a, a key plot moment that occurs there, but it's really about a mindset, um, that they're, that they're trying to bring to this space. So another craft question I wanted to ask you about, um, and you know, you're talking about community and thinking of these things and, and this, the situation, right. Um, police murdering a young black boy um, becomes is is could become a, a situation where or could become a space where you're just like sort of hammering home this is my belief and this is what I think and this is how it should be right in, in kind of a like I'm going to tell this story to get to this point and I don't think you did that right I think you really played with multiple ways in which we could come to come to even be in this space and and then what we get out of this situation um if that i don't know if this is making sense but right like but i'm wondering like how was it like was there a lot of tension there with you to try and tell this story in a way that you weren't just like saying like i'm gonna get to the end and the end is gonna be neat and tidy and this is how it should be okay yeah (laughs) so the 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 ending was intentionally open-ended and you know i i have a strong belief that that literature shouldn't necessarily come to a finite kind of try to try to shouldn't necessarily try to bring a conversation to a finite endpoint but should try to push the boundaries of a conversation and leave readers with questions and with considerations but not necessarily this is the way it should be um, and so that was, that was definitely, um, one of the things I set out to do, um, which might end up actually being, being a little frustrating to some readers who, who might want a more definitive, uh, um, end point. And I understand that. I get that. There are some books where I read where I have that feeling too. Um, the other thing though, that I will say is that I think the book started to work better there's multiple, you know, points at which sort of the the book started to work better and then better again and better again. And one of those points was a moment where I really intentionally had to kind of sit down with myself and take my own ego out of it and my own set of viewpoints out of it and just write the characters and write their stories from their vantage points. And that's a very sort of writerly in some ways hokey thing to say, but is is the reality of it i think for a lot of writers that once we have that difficult conversation with ourselves 
Um, and once we stop intervening um, as Anise in the story, as opposed to the the author of the story, um, things start to go a little bit smoother, and the narrative starts to starts to really click in. So, and one other thing I had a question I had about sort of thinking through character or thinking about sort of what you were writing about um, is you were also writing about white nationalists, right? And this sort of <clears throat> white national revolutionary thing, and uh, which can be, which I would guess, I mean, if I were writing about that would be really difficult to do or difficult to do in a way that um, not necessarily gave sympathy, but sort of made sure that there was some sort of depth to who you were writing about. So can you talk a little bit of, maybe it wasn't an issue, but could you talk a little bit about that and writing a story where you have these um, racist folks who are representing one part of a revolution? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it certainly was a challenge. Um, and Still, when I read it, sometimes I wonder, hey, you know, why did I, why did I, <laughs> why did I give so much space to that or to that character, to that, you know, that thought? I think part of it is that, you know, again, going back to that previous answer, once I took my own or once I tried to take my own kind of ego out of this and started to write from these characters' perspectives especially the last two that you meet, Jeremiah and Nova, are continually trying to reach for greater degrees of empathy and greater degrees of compassion. And even in the midst of all of their grief, even in the midst of all of the injustices, they see and diagnose with incredible accuracy. And even in the midst of all of their very, very righteous anger, they are reaching for these greater degrees of empathy and compassion and trying to figure out where the lines of those, of that empathy is. So their uh, confrontations, or, I mean, I don't even know if that's the right word. They're, they're the moments where they meet their antagonists, if you will, became really compelling moments to me. Because you have these characters grappling with every part of themselves. That is Jeremiah and Nova. They're grappling with all of their instincts towards justice. They're grappling with all of their um, instincts towards empathy. They're grappling grappling with all of their, their very righteous desire to see some level of, of, of punishment done. And their diagnosis of a real sickness inside of some folks, right? And as they grapple with that, then it has to come out in the narrative. You know, there's there's no other way for that to really emerge in the story. So it was almost, you know, forced, frankly, that that the characters that you see who who maybe are 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 not <laughs> are not the not the heroes of the story um, have to have a, a certain level of depth to them. Now I will say this, there's also, you know, there's also a lot of depth that that was taken or that I didn't put into the book because it didn't seem necessary. Um, and I at the end of the day wanted this book to be that was a black to be a black-centered book, right? Um, and so there, you know, you don't get a ton of just lengthy, lengthy background on some of the the anti or some of the um 
antagonists of the book. You don't get um, a ton of a ton of exposition around their their viewpoints, but you do get enough to see that this is a human being, right? And that was that was what was critical to me. So I have one other question it's kind of about that, and then I'm going to ask you to read a little bit. So I'll warn you, right? Um, but I think, too, in writing a book like this, it's got to be exhausting, emotionally exhausting, right, to kind of return to some of this and to keep writing that. So can you um, talk about that? Talk a, a little bit about, if you don't mind, what it's like to have to live in these worlds and live in these spaces and write this um, and also take care of yourself, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure I'm great at the last part of that, <laughs> you know, to be honest with you. Um, I started to like get really disciplined about my writing routine, actually, when my when my son was born. He's six years old. And, um, and it felt like, uh, for whatever reason at that moment, it felt like I really just needed to start getting disciplined and really needed to write this novel. Um, the timing uh, of having a newborn and also trying to get serious about uh, writing is not great timing. And so, you know, I was getting up um, 5, 5.30 every morning um, and with him. And then when my daughter came, she's three now um, with her as well. Uh, no matter how many times they woke up at night, no matter how little I slept, it was sort of, it was, it felt necessary and urgent to, to write the book. It also felt in some ways like, you know, such a joyous moment in the morning when I got to be by myself and write. And then in other ways, it was like, man, I never want to wake up into this world again. You know, it's exhausting psychologically. Um, Obviously does not at all compare to the real grief and real trauma that people who have been family or friends of those who've experienced um, violence at the hands of the police um, no, but, um, but it is its own kind of, kind of, you know, ongoing, uh, psychological toll that writing this book took. And when I got to the end of it, you know, cause my kids are, you know, I have two black children and every morning I was waking up imagining the death of a black child, right. And the consequences of that. Um, and so when I got to the end of the book and finally sent in the last version to my editor and the the publishing the publishing folk, I never wanted to. I never wanted. Not only did I never want to write um, any part of the book again or edit any part of the book again, I never wanted to read it again. I was like, I am, I am done, and I'm out of that world. Um, and so that was. I mean, but that was close to a year ago. Uh, a year and three months ago. And so now anytime somebody asks me to read an excerpt from it or, you know, go back to a particular piece of it, I honestly, I just hold my breath and I'm like, oh my God, I hope this isn't terrible. <laughs> That's where I'm at right now. Where I'm like, oh God. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> I would love for you, <laughs> to, if you are okay with it, to read an excerpt from your book. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I will read... The uh, the first, how about I read the first three paragraphs here? Sounds great. A soldier approached the car. The dog at his side raised its snout and snarled at the darkening purple sky. Malik put a hand on his chest, expecting a ripple of fear. It did not come. Instead, his heart tightened at the thought of his grandfather, hundreds of miles away, alone at home, dosing himself with anxiety pills 
because his only grandchild had set out for Bliss City that morning. By nightfall, that grandchild would be a traitor or a corpse or a member of the Hush Harbor resistance. Malik had left a goodbye note. Should he have asked permission, sat down and explained why he was joining what his grandfather called a moral circus? Malik knew the conversation would rapidly devolve. His grandfather would cite empty maxims about the arc of moral history and working with your enemies and forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. Malik would listen with compassion and his doubt would grow. He would question his decision. How could he not? Leaving would break his grandfather's heart. No, Malik thought, it was better to simply disappear into the night with a duffel bag on his shoulder, a small notebook in his pocket, and a bus ticket in his hand. The soldier knocked on the driver's seat window. Thank you so much for reading. Um, So this book, we've been talking about your book for a while. Um, So it comes out on September 5th. So can you, you, what's going on with the book? Do you have, I'll ask you my final question about, um, do you have anything you want to sort of push or promote with this? Or is there anything you're working on next that you want to talk about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you for that question. Um, so, you know, obviously the, the book itself, if, you know, if folks have enjoyed this interview, I, you know, um, I might hope that you would just go check out the book and read a description of it and see if it's something that you might that you might like reading or talking about or 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 thinking about. Um, and feel free to connect with me, anyone who's listening on Twitter. I'm at Anise Vance, A-N-I-S-E Vance at uh, on Twitter um, or X, I think as it's called now. Um, but uh, but I'm really yeah. So if and if anyone's listening who's in the Chapel Hill area, um, and this comes out uh, and this interview comes out before September 5th, feel free to drop by Flyleaf Books on September 5th at 6 p.m. for the the launch event. I'll, there'll, there'll also be events in D.C. and in other cities as well. So I'm really excited about finally getting the book in people's hands it's it's been a long time and i can't wait to connect with readers and um and and see the book out in the world on its own which will be really exciting uh in terms of next projects yeah so i'm you know i'm starting oh i started a novel that i'm really excited about and just sent actually you know the first batch of pages off to my to my agent in the same way that Hush Harbor is a literary is literary fiction with sort of this speculative element that takes the form of a political thriller. The next novel is uh, well, hopefully, what one would classify as literary fiction um, with a speculative element, but takes the form of a, a heist novel, um, and it's refugee centered. Um, and so I'm super excited about about that novel coming out. This novel draws a lot from my my dad's side of the family. Um, uh, my the black part of my family. The the next novel draws a lot from my Iranian side of the family, my immigrant part of the family that that has experienced a lot of displacement and um, and a lot of questions around home and what that means and how do you create or take back a sense of home. So Anise, thanks so much for talking with me again. Anise Vance, who is the author of Hush Harbor, thanks for talking with me on New Books Network. Thank you, Rebecca. This was a pleasure. <laughs>